Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome soul to soul. It was wonderful to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon, recording live from our home here in Hazel as lockdown continues. We hope everybody's well and healthy and strong and uh, staying positive both emotionally and spiritually and continuing to do all we can do under these very unprecedented and interesting circumstances we find ourselves in with this global pandemic continuing. I'd like to share with you some wonderful um, historical uh, facts which relate to a very important day, which is tomorrow night, a very important date on the Hebrew calendar. That's the 28th of Iyar, Koyach Iyar, and that is Yom Yerushalayim, the day when Yerushalayim was reunited in 1967, and the events of the Six-Day War were quite remarkable and incredible. So I would love to use this opportunity to share with you some thoughts about Yom Yerushalayim and some historical facts about what transpired 53 years ago. Jerusalem is the center of the world, the center of the Jewish world. Jerusalem um, is a place in the hearts of every Jew. There's a very powerful love affair between the Jewish people and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is mentioned 660 times in Tanakh, and even though the temples were destroyed twice, even though the city was besieged 23 times, was captured and reconquered 44 times, Jews never ceased praying for Jerusalem. They never ceased praying about Jerusalem and facing Jerusalem. All of our prayers, according to our holy tradition, ascend on high via Jerusalem, via Jerusalem. We know that the Kabbalists call Jerusalem the neck of the world. Just as a human being has a body and has a head, and those parts those essential parts are connected through the neck, so too does that work in, the, in God's world. And the physical material world, the earth that we live in, it is the body, and that's connected to the head, which is the spiritual worlds above us, via Yerushalayim. That is the contact point, the connecting point of spirituality and of physicality in this world. And that's why all of our tefillahs, all our prayers, they go up to the higher worlds, go via Yerushalayim, via Jerusalem. We are promised in the Midrash that God says he'll never leave Jerusalem. God's presence will always be found in Jerusalem, always be found in the Kota Maravi, in the Western Wall. And that's why when we go there, we feel this tremendous energy and power. Even though the temple's been destroyed, God promises that his presence will be upon. He'll be peeping through those cracks and be present in the Western Wall. And so for the Jewish people to be reunited with Yerushalayim, not only West Jerusalem, but the Old City and East Jerusalem too, was a day of great joy and celebration for Klal Yisrael. It's very important that we remember that um, the real true historical facts of the time. Uh, today we have revisionist historians that like to distort the past in order to fit in with their current political agenda. 
And it's therefore important that we know the facts and we understand how things transpired. So what I would like to do is paint a bit of a picture and share with you the background and the events that led up to the Six-Day War and resulted in the Six-Day War. The starting point is the very powerful and charismatic leader of Egypt, Gamal Abdul Nasser, who was a person who had great aspirations and had um, the desire, he saw himself as the leading statesman of the time, he had a desire to unite the Arab world in what he called the United Arab Republic. And Syria was the first um, place that he targeted. Syria was always the most unstable of the Arab countries. They had 28 governments in less than 20 years. It was one military coup after the next. And um, we see that today. That's why there's a terrible civil war that's erupted in Syria because there's so many different groupings that were pulled together into one country. Um, Nasser united with the Ba'ath Party that came into power in Syria, and that became what was called the United Arab Republic. Um, and they claimed that uh, Syria and Egypt made up this United Arab Republic with Israel in the middle. Israel blocked them. Israel was an obstacle. Israel prevented from the Arab world being united. Nasser wasn't unanimously popular with the other, other Arab leaders. Um, King Hussein of Jordan opposed Nasser very strongly. They had many public um, brawls. They said terrible things about each other, things that cannot be repeated in public. Um, the Saudis also were very suspicious of Nasser. Um, they saw that he coveted their rich oil fields. In fact, there was a civil war in Yemen, and the Saudis supported one side, and Nasser supported another side. He sent 60,000 uh, Egyptian troops to support his side in the war. And by the way, the Arab world has lost more people to their own wars within the Arab world than to their war with Israel. Um, but nevertheless, Nasser realized that the only way to unite the Arab world under his leadership would be to and fulfill his vision would be to um, would be to unite the Arabs against Israel. That was his his trump card. That he knew that was the way to get a united Arab world, and that certainly was his mission and his goal and his focus. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So we're talking about um, the situation and events in 1967 when um, the leader of Egypt, Nasser, wanted to join the Arab world and he realized the way he would do that would be by uniting all of the Arab world against Israel. Now Israel suffers, always has a continues to suffer from its great desire for peace, blinding it to the enmity and hatred of the um, of the of its Arab neighbors around them. And as late as 1966, before the Six-Day War, Yitzhak Rabin, who was the chief of staff, he said no Arab countries would attack Israel. It would be a big mistake for them. Obviously, that, that was a big mistake that he made. Um, also, he said that any war, this was very smart what he said, that any war that Israel would fight would have to end in a week. He said the Israeli economy and the army couldn't support a war for more than a week. And therefore, all plans would um, have to be around a quick, decisive war. And uh, that would mean Israel would always need to carry out a preemptive strike. And that was the, you know, of course, in 1966, when he said this, this was all theory. The leader of Israel at the time was Levi Eshkol. He was the prime minister. 
Eshkol was Israel's third prime minister, the first prime minister of Ben-Gurion, and then Moshe Sharet, and then Ben-Gurion again, and the third prime minister was Eshkol from 63 to 69. Eshkol was a very underrated person. He was smart. He was a, a person of strength. He was very strong. Um, and he had a, 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 the ability to unite his cabinet. However, he didn't come over that way to the public. His public persona was quite weak. He wasn't good looking. He wasn't a good speaker. And he didn't give the sense of being a powerful leader. On the 15th of May 1967, it's Israel's 19th Independence Day. NASA, looking for glory, took the bigger gamble. He threw the dice by parading two divisions of Egyptian of the Egyptian army in Cairo, and he then sent them into the Sinai. Um, and NASA at that time realized he was at a stalemate regarding his own personal interests. He was constantly prodded by the Jordanians and by the Saudis that what's he going to do about Israel, and he's a big talk, and he hasn't really done anything for the Arab world. And um, he Egypt was at that time bankrupt. He, they were bankrupt because they had to pay the Russians large amounts of money for all the arms that were pouring into Egypt from Russia at the time. Um, as payment, the Russians took the entire Egyptian cotton crop of that year, which was their major export. Um, the United States wouldn't get involved. It wouldn't give Egypt any money. So the Arab Republic, United Arab Republic, had broken down. Syria had withdrawn. Before it all fell apart, Nasser knew that he had to do something drastic, and he went for it. Um, so he began to talk about war and the elimination of Israel. And it wasn't a territorial um, threat anymore that Israel was a territorial threat to the Arab world. He dropped all those pretenses and he said that he's going to annihilate Israel. These are the words that he said. These are the, the quotes directly that he made on Cairo radio. He says, this is our chance. Um, so this is what he said. He said, this is our chance. And this is something that we are going to be, um, right? This is our chance. Sorry, um, we're back. This is our chance to, so this is a direct quote from NASA on uh, Cairo radio. He said, this is our chance to deal with Israel, a mortal blow of annihilation. The Arab people is firmly resolved to wipe Israel off the map. We will not accept any coexistence with Israel. Today, the issue is not the establishment of peace between the Arabs and Israel. The war with Israel is in effect since 1948. So this is some of the rhetoric that NASA was was uh, making to uh, pu uh, live public statements um, to the world. So he also established the PLO at that time. So naturally, the Israelis took such statements very seriously, and the situation began to escalate. NASA sends his troops into the Sinai, and therefore he raises the ante in terms of his rhetoric against Israel. The head of the United Nations at the time was a Burmese, Burmese, from Burma by the name of Uthant. And Uthant didn't consult anybody. He didn't consult the um, Security Council. He just pulled his troops out of Sinai. NASA reimposed the blockade on the Straits of Aqaba, and Egyptian troops were back at the Israeli border. And it was not a small amount of Egyptian troops. The Egyptian army in Sinai was 120,000 men. There were over 1,000 artillery pieces. There were 3,000 tanks. So they, and they had very strong lines of fortification built by the Russians in the Sinai. So NASA is very confident. And he uh, now signs a treaty with Syria. Even though Syria backed out of the United Arab Republic, they signed this treaty that placed command 
of the Syrian army under Egypt. And now we have a two-front war. And the Arabs constantly incited each other, each one having to outdo the other in their hate for Israel. They convinced themselves that this time they're going to be successful and they're going to destroy the state of Israel. NASA said in Egyptian parliament on May the 25th, 1967, 10 days later, he said the question is not whether we should blockade the port of Eilat. The question is how to eliminate the state of Israel once and for all, for all time. Um, so obviously Israel is now very concerned and Israel realizes the great peril that is taking place that they are facing um, on their borders with Egypt and therefore they um, have to do something quite drastic in order to deal with this terrible threat um, that they are facing. So um, what Israel does is they um, Israel sends their foreign minister to try and deal with the issue. Their foreign minister at the time was Abu Iban, and Abu Iban was a um, he's very familiar to us South Africans. Abu Iban um, was born in Cape Town. He lived in the United Kingdom. Um, as a, he moved to the United Kingdom as a young child, he was well known for his powers of oratory, had an outstanding command of the English language. But this was not Abu Iban's finest hour because um, we'll see now in a moment. He, so his job now was to go around the world and to gain public support for Israel, to gain support from uh, Western powers and to try and get the world powers to pressurize NASA to back off. So Israel wanted a diplomatic solution. They were not looking for war. They were an adolescent country of 19 years old. They weren't this imperialistic power that was looking to colonize and spread their territory. There was not at all the reality was going on in Israel. Israel was trying to consolidate itself, was 19 years old. It was not looking and planning to go into a war with the Arabs who had many more soldiers and had much more um, arms. They were much better equipped than Israel. And Israel therefore wanted a diplomatic solution. Uh, Abu Ibn wasn't aware of the fact that the Russians were feeding false information to, um, feeding false into information to, um, the, to NASA and to the Arab world. Um, what were they saying, the Russians? They were telling the Arab world that, the, well, the Russians told NASA directly that, um, what was going on was that Israel was sending troops to, um, was, uh, that Israel was sending troops to Syria and were planning to attack Syria. That was, of course, false, but NASA didn't know that, nor did Abu Ibn uh, know that. But Russia's intentions were that there would be a war. They were confident that NASA would win because they had supplied Egypt so well. And once NASA defeated Israel and NASA was the, the in control of the Middle East, so the Russians would be in control of the Middle East. Ibn first travels to Paris. He goes to see the French Prime Minister Charles de Gaulle. De Gaulle had just been re-elected Prime Minister on the ticket that he would defeat the Algerians. Of course, de Gaulle was the great hero of France. Um, he was a very difficult person, de Gaulle. Uh, Churchill and Roosevelt said their biggest challenges in World War II were dealing with de Gaulle. But he represented French patriotism and he was the great French general. And so um, he, they had to deal with him in the Second World War and uh, Abu Ibn had to try to deal with de Gaulle. De Gaulle had been now reappointed prime minister because he said he would defeat the Algerian forces and restore Algeria as a French colony and consolidate as a French colony. Um, but uh, he did exactly the opposite when he came to power. Not the first time, certainly not the last, that a, a leader uh, gets voted in on one 
promise and he does exactly the opposite. Anyway, when Iban meets the Gaul, the Gaul tells him that you are not allowed to attack first, that there will no preemptive strike will be tolerated if you attack first. France won't support you, the world won't support you, and we won't supply with arms. Remember, French, France was the primary supplier of arms to Israel. America wouldn't supply arms to Israel. Russia wouldn't supply arms to Israel. Got most of their army was supplied by the French, especially the Israeli Air Force, the Israeli planes, the Mustairs, the Mirages, the Fugas. They were all French. There was a deal that was negotiated about Shimon Peres um, with the French, and the Gaul said that France would cut all of all military shipments if Israel didn't if Israel strike first. Um, Iban made no protest to these very clear statements of de Gaulle, and de Gaulle was under the impression that Iban agreed with him. He then flies to London, and he meets with the British Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, the Labour Prime Minister, and Wilson gives him a warmer audience reception than de Gaulle did, and he says, don't worry, we, me and my friend Lyndon Johnson, we are going to find some sort of diplomatic solution over here. Don't do anything. Don't strike first. Um, we're going to, we, we, we will resolve this. So Ibn is reassured. He flies to the States. He meets with the, uh, American president, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Johnson's now in the quagmire of the Vietnam War. Um, he's no, he has no popular support. There's rioting in the streets and campuses of the United States. There's high inflation. Johnson, uh, just a few months later, is going to announce that he's not going to, um, run for re-election. And Johnson says to him, don't do anything. Don't make more trouble for me. I have enough troubles to deal with. We are going to find a diplomatic solution. Don't worry about it. Now, Johnson was a very charming person. He entertained Ibn. He uh, was larger than life. Ibn got the wrong message. He thought that Johnson, he had won Johnson over, and this is going to be sorted. Britain and America are going to uh, sort out these problems. He gets back to Israel. He reports to the cabinet. He gives a very rosy report and says they're going to send an international flotilla. They'll break, break the blockade. It's all going to be fine. Um, however, it didn't take long for the Israeli government to realize that nothing was happening on the international stage, that there were no attempts to find a diplomatic solution, and Israel was, as always, alone, which sounds familiar. Israel was alone. And therefore, they had to uh, look after themselves they had to do something to prevent this second Holocaust, God forbid, from taking place. Now, two very important events happened then, which escalated things. The first one, which are very significant, the first one is that um, Levi Eshkol, the Prime Minister of Israel, makes a speech on the radio. And he's handed the speech as he steps into the studio, which is never a good idea for a public speaker. Even Rabbi Saxton has to prepare his speeches um, and so Iban made a real mess of it. He stammered and he stumbled and he, um, he, the, the people that were listening became de despondent and depressed. They felt like they were leaderless. He said things like, we appear to appeal to Egypt and to Syria to respect international borders and international agreements. He came over weak and meek. Instead of saying, whoever messes with us is going to get a very heavy smack. He came over very, very meek, and uh, both content and delivery were very bad. It created a big public out outcry. Um, the, the people wanted Eshkol to resign or at least to hand over the um, Ministry of Defense to somebody else. Up until from the 48 war, at the um, insistence of Ben-Gurion, the Prime Minister was also the Minister of Defense. 
But uh, so the people said either he must resign or at least appoint another minister of defense. That's the first thing that happened. Second thing that happened was the chief of staff of the Israeli army of Tzahal, Hitzhak Rabin, had a nervous breakdown. They told the world that he had nicotine poisoning. He was a chain smoker. But really he had collapsed. And so the Israeli public was disheartened. We got a weak prime minister and we got no, um, uh, who's also the, the, the minister of defense and our chief of staff is not around. What are we going to do? And so Eshkol, under tremendous amount of public opinion, was forced to make some radical changes. Firstly, he uh, makes a wall-to-wall cabinet, including Menachem Begin. For the first time, Begin was now part. He was a minister without portfolio, but he was for the first time in the government. And secondly, he appointed Moshe Dayan as the minister of defense. And Dayan was a person of, uh, although Dayan had been um, somebody who, uh, he was a war hero and he was uh, looked up to as being a very powerful, great military strategist. Um, although his private life was in shambles, there were many uh, scandals that were associated with him, but still he was seen as the hero of the War of Independence. He was seen as a hero of the Sinai campaign of, of Operation Kadesh. People respected him and the Arabs feared him. And he's appointed Minister of Defense. Now he later wrote in his memoirs, um, Diane, that there's nothing he could really do. All the war plans and strategies that had been drawn up already, he couldn't make any changes. The war was about to break out, but he said the one thing he could affect was morale. And morale in an army is sometimes even more important than men and even more important than equipment. Morale is essential to the success of an army. And finally, the last straw now takes place, and that is King Hussein flies to Cairo from Amman, and he signs an agreement with NASA placing the Jordanian army under Egyptian control. So now Israel faces a threat from three sides, from the north, from Egypt, from the east, from Jordan, and from the south, from Egypt. And so, um, and, and with all of this, the tremendous amount of propaganda and rhetoric coming from the Arab world that they're going to wipe Israel out, that they're going to destroy Israel, that they're going to um, throw all the Jews into the sea. And so that's the situation. That's the reality that Israel is facing at this time. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So we're talking about the very precarious situation that Israel faced in 1967. Um, the uh, NASA, the very powerful leader of Egypt, has rearmed extensively. He has created an alliance with Syria and with Jordan. Uh, Israel faces a tremendous mortal threat on three fronts with, with uh, uh, a tremendous amount of rhetoric coming from the Arab leaders that they're going to destroy Israel. And on paper – the Arabs were much stronger. The revisionist historians like to change that fact. But the truth is the Arabs were much stronger. They, the Russians are very confident that they will succeed because they've armed them so well. Um, they have the strategic advantage. And the Arabs really were overconfident. Um, let me tell you what the, what the numbers were. Let's break down some of those numbers. So Israel had 50,000 troops and 240,000 reservists. There's a total of 264,000 troops. Um, the Arabs, Egypt had 240,000 soldiers and the combined 
joint armies of Syria, Jordan, and, e- and Iraq added another 307,000 soldiers. So in total, it was 547,000. So it's 264,000 versus 547,000. So the Arabs have doubled the amount of soldiers. When it comes to um, tanks, Israel has 800 tanks. The Arabs have 2,500 tanks, so three times more tanks. When it comes to the aircraft, Israel has 300 aircraft. Arabs have 957 aircraft. So it's also three times more in terms of so it's double soldiers, triple tanks, triple planes. So and the strategic advantage. What's the strategic advantage? The Russians were aware um, that Israel was warned by France, by Britain, by the United States not to make a preemptive strike and to wait until the first blow until they could respond. It was the same in 1973. Israel knew that Egypt and Syria was about to invade them and Golda decided not to attack because she didn't want to risk going against what the U.S. government said. They said the same thing, don't attack first. So Israel would have to suffer the first blow. That first blow in 73 was so heavy that it almost wiped out Israel. Um, but in 67, the Israeli government decided differently, and they realized that they had no option. There was not part of their colonial will to expand. They had no option to prevent annihilation excepting for a preemptive strike. And so they order Operation Focus Operation Miftam Mokade on June the 5th, 1967. Um, a, the, the Operation Mokade was a plan that had been drilled for years by Israeli pilots. Um, the Israelis had excellent intel of the Egyptian the Air Force bases, uh, mainly from Wolfgang Lotz, who was a German-born Israeli spy who posed as a former SS officer, and also from Ali Al-Alfi, who was NASA's personal monsieur, together they gave very valuable intel to Israel. And so Israel knew exactly what they had, had to do, and they had uh, trained extensively in these uh, operations. Uh, Israel, the Israeli planes had to fly very low, 15 meters above sea level, to avoid detection. If they were detected, uh, Egypt had very effective anti-air uh, missiles that Israel was concerned about. Egypt had 82 radar sites that Israel had to d- avoid. And the Egyptians were ta- caught by total surprise. Because of the diplomatic um, pressure on Israel, the Egyptians never expect- expected a preemptive strike, and uh, the Israelis timed it to perfection. That they, they uh, When they, the, they carried out the strike, most of the Egyptian planes were on the ground, and the pilots were eating breakfast. The Israelis knew that. They knew the timing. Um, because the Egyptians assumed that if there would be an Israeli strike, it would be at dawn. So all the MiGs had flown their dawn patrols and now returned to their bases. Um, the, it, the Jordanians had the most sophisticated radar facility in the Middle East, which was supplied by the British at Ajlun. Um, and the, at 8.15, the screens were full of blips. They saw that the Israelis were carrying out an attack. The officer on duty radioed grape, inab, which was the code word for war, to the Egyptian general, um, Riyadh, in the headquarters in Amman. Riyadh relayed it to the defense minister and um, in Cairo, but the Egyptians had changed the encoding frequency uh, the previous day without informing the Jordanians, so it remained indecipherable. Isn't that amazing? So we see that there were some incredible miracles that took place. Uh, that was the hand of God. The Israelis didn't know any of this. This was God protecting the Jewish people. And so, anyway, the defense minister wasn't at his post. He had uh, just gone to sleep uh, after a night of entertainment, um, and he entertained an Iraqi military delegation with Egypt's most famous belly dancers. 
And again, this was, he had given orders he shouldn't be woken. Again, it's God's hand. Tashkocha. Israel didn't know any of this, but that's what was going on. Operation Focus was um, a very intricate operation. It required dozens of squadrons from different bases to rendezvous silently over 11 targets between 20 and 40 five minutes flying time away. It was extremely complex. All but 12 of Israel's 300 jets were thrown into the attack, leaving Israel's skies virtually defenseless at the time of the attack. They, uh, they achieved unbelievable success, Baruch Hashem, and it was way beyond the exp- – I've seen an interview with the uh, head of the Israeli Air Force in 67. He said in his wildest dreams he didn't expect the attack to be so successful. Um, by the end of the first wave, four airfields in Sinai and two in Egypt had been entirely knocked out. The Egyptians had lost 204 planes, half of their air force. All but nine were on the ground. In the second wave, the Israeli Air Force destroyed another 107 planes with nine losses. 13 bases were rendered inoperable, along with 23 radar sites and anti-aircraft sites. So the beginnings were a stunning and smashing success. NASA, uh, full of disinformation, uh, said that Haifa and Tel Aviv were in flames. He urged King Hussein and the Jordanians to enter the war. Uh, Hussein knew in his heart of hearts that NASA was not telling the truth, but here the pressure was too big and he entered the war. Israel had asked the Jordanians not to enter the war. They said, if you don't do anything, we won't do anything, but the Jordanians attacked. And so there were similar uh, attacks, uh, uh, missions carried out against the Jordanian and Syrian air forces, and the Israelis had excellent intel from Eli Cohen about the Syrian um, air forces and the Syrian uh, army, and so there was similar success in Jordan and in Syria as well. By the end of June the 5th, 1967, the first day of the war, 400 Arab planes were destroyed, first 19 Israeli planes. There were extensive battles in Sinai, um, in the Golan, in the Shtachim, Yehuda Shomron, the West Bank, and of course the jewel of the crown, the um, city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, one of the, the, the most... Uh, Significant battles was Givata Tachmoshet, Ammunition Hill. On our last Sunny Road Kahila trip to Israel, we spent quite a lot of time at Ammunition Hill. It's an amazing place, worthwhile going there when you next visit Yerushalayim. And you see the the very difficult task of the paratroopers to try and, and defeat the Jordanian headquarters, which were up on this hill, and they could see um, all around, and it, particularly the old city, there was no way the Jews could penetrate the old city without first taking Ammunition Hill, which was very well fortified and defended by the Jordanians. It turned out to be one of the uh, most uh, intense battles in the Arab-Israel conflict, and with great bravery and unfortunately a, a large loss of life, the Israelis, um, by 4.30 in the morning, they had reached the main bunker, they blew the main bunker up of uh, the Syrians, and they took Ammunition Hill, and then they paved the way to the old city, and they were able to get to the old city, um, which was a tremendous moment and a great source of victory. We all hear those words of uh, Colonel Motagur, who said, Har habais bayadenu, the, the Temple Mount is in our hands. Very powerful and emotional for the Jewish people to return to Yerushalayim. And after, and after 2,000 years, Yerushalayim was once again in the hands of the Jewish people. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment.
This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So to conclude, we're discussing the very special and powerful day of Yom Yerushalayim, which is this Thursday night and Friday, the 21st and 22nd of May, the 28th of ER. And it's a day of great joy for the Jewish people, um, the reunification of the city of Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim once again under Jewish control. We see the incredible, miraculous circumstances that took place. Israel, the underdogs, Israel facing the threat of annihilation. Um, they carry out without any choice a preemptive strike and are met with tremendous success on all fronts. Thank God, Baruch Hashem. Israel triples its territory and gains vital strategic assets like the Golan Heights and, of course, the nostalgic and essential uh, city of Yerushalayim at the heart of Klaus, of the heart of the Jewish people. So we celebrate that and we rejoice over it, something we shouldn't take for granted, something we should appreciate greatly. And even after the Six-Day War, um, Diane said he was waiting for the phone call, meaning that Israel was willing to give up all the territory gained to come to sort, sort of some sort of agreement, some sort of genuine peace treaty. The Arabs met in Khartoum in Sudan on the 1st of September 1967, and they came up with the three no's. No peace with Israel, no negotiations with Israel, no recognition of Israel. And that remained the Arab policy. Um, after 67, Israel remained in the Sinai and the West Bank and the Golan. Israel gave the Sinai back in 78 with the peace treaty with Sadat. Um, but still we face a, a very difficult situation in the Middle East. Um, Israel, as always, is open to and looking for peace and wants to make peace, but unfortunately is met with great anger and antagonism from its Arab neighbors and has to deal with the reality of the situation. So one last point I want to make, and I want to leave you with this point, um, and that is that up until then it had been a conflict with the Arab nations, um, the Arab states versus Israel. And uh, Israel was the underdog in that. But after the Six-Day War, so it's a, the Arab world turned it to be a contact between Israel, conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. They changed the narrative. And with the Arab states against Israel, Israel is the underdog. With Israel against the Palestinians, the Palestinians are the underdog. So that's – and it's not – they didn't make it a territorial, territorial issue, but they made it an existential issue. As long as it's an existential issue, it's very difficult to find. When the Arabs say Israel has no right to exist, we don't recognize Israel's right to exist, it's very difficult to come to some sort of agreement. So when that's what Sadat did in, in 78. He, he, he shifted it to be a territorial issue, and then one can come to compromise and, and find a solution. So please, God, we will make it a territorial issue, and we'll come to a compromise, and there will be peace in the Middle East, and there will be Shalom al Israel. But we all thank God and have great appreciation that Yerushalayim is in our hands. Shalom has been unified, and after 2,000 years, that love story between the Jewish people and Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, continues, and we will always cherish and hold on to our beloved capital city, Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh. Thank you for listening. Keep stay safe, keep healthy, and have a wonderful day.